Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, our guest is James O.D. We are honored to have James here today. He is known as a peace activist. He's an author. He is extended faculty and past president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He is the former Washington, D.C. office director of Amnesty International. He is former executive director of SIVA Foundation. He currently co-directs the Social Healing Project. He is a an author of uh, two very... Um, powerful books. One, Creative Stress, A Path for Evolving Souls, Living Through Personal and Planetary Upheaval. And his most recent book, which is just hitting the bookstores, Cultivating Peace, Becoming a 21st Century Peace Ambassador. James, welcome to Leading Conversations. Thank you, Cheryl. So good to be with you. It's wonderful to be with you. I, I am so honored to have you here. I have um, been aware of your work for many years, and to be able to have a conversation with you is um, a real pleasure for me. So let's talk a little bit. Let's start kind of way back in your life. You are most known as an activist in the world, a social activist, and a peace activist. And I'm always curious about how people begin to develop an interest in where they end up. So where did this start for you? Um, well, I was born in Ireland, and then we, my, when I was 11, my family moved to England. And uh, it was in London that I began to, as a teenager, organize a little. And uh, I organized uh, a bunch of other young students to survey a part of London, a whole area of London, with regard to social services, particularly for the senior citizens. Were they getting what they were needed? Were they alone? Do they need help? And uh, I got an award for that work. I was named the Teenager of the Year. Oh. What was interesting about that, Cheryl, was when you're young, you can afford to, in some ways, be you know, passionate and a little arrogant, so I got a lot of media attention, and the head of the welfare authorities in England sent me a letter saying, well, it seems as if you've roused public attention on this issue, and I'd be so grateful if you'd come and discuss it with me directly. And uh, I now think, you know, a mature person wouldn't have responded the way I did, but I, I wrote back a letter saying, 
You know what you need to do, and when you do it, we can meet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's quite a challenge (laughs) that you laid down for them. Right. I think I was a little afraid of getting caught in the, you know, the coils of the bureaucracy. So, uh, it it came from a, a lovely place of both compassion and the desire to see social change. Well, having grown up, spending part of your life in Ireland, um, that must have left a big imprint on you as you watched the conflict that went on there. Um, What was it like as a child to experience that? Well, I lived in the South, and uh, actually when I was growing up, it was very quiet. It, Uh It really broke out later in the 60s and 70s and 80s, so... I was growing up as a child in the 50s in Ireland, so it was pretty quiet. But but since then, I have returned many times to the north of Ireland, specifically to Derry. And I'm always fascinated in any conflict. Who are the people who have been hurt and violated but somehow do not become attached to their victim status? Mm-hmm. It's as if... It's there, the, you know, I sometimes say the heart is a phoenix. It can get broken and then rise out of the ashes. And I, I think in an evolutionary sense, we must look at those capacities of people who really experience terrible suffering, and yet it initiates them. It opens up, them up to their greatness, and they then have the capacity to, to embrace both sides and to live more deeply. And I, I think it's a good example to us all that when we feel oppressed by whatever conditions, that we not let that define us, but more that we move beyond that. Well, you know, I think that that, that is a brilliant observation. I'm wondering how people actually engage that in themselves. Well, there's a great mystery, you know, on my website, jamesod.com, there's a free report called the Social Healing Report that has examples of work from Rwanda, Israel, Palestine, and Northern Ireland, and it was written with my colleague, Judith Thompson, and one of the things we say in there is there does seem to be a great mystery in facing pain. Our natural instinct is when pain is coming at us, is to try to numb it down or even dumb it down or avoid it in some ways. But it seems as if those who kind of stand in the fire and let the pain go through them, it, it, they become expanded beings. And I think of you know a woman in Northern Ireland who was shot, and then when she lost so much blood and they took her to the hospital, they realized that you know one of the bullets had gone and lodged right, right in her heart, right by the aorta, and they told her when she became conscious, they couldn't possibly operate on her without doing major damage and possibly you know killing her. So she had to live with the bullet lodged next to her heart, literally, not just metaphorically, but literally, yes. and she became such a force herself for bringing people together. 
And uh, I think it's that very difficult moment when we decide, am I going to face the pain? I talk about this in creative stress, that the really creative people stand and don't try to make a false positive out of it. How are you doing? Oh, fine, fine. You know, where the voice goes up, and it's not really real. It's We somehow feel we have to put a brave face on it. And the irony is, or the mystery is, that actually when we go into it and we feel the wound and we feel the bitterness, that then it's actually passing through us rather than getting held on the, on the side and repressed. Well, but yeah, you know that I, I understand that. It, it's as if denial is actually what keeps us stuck. And, and I think people feel that if I don't acknowledge it, then, then it won't hurt me. Right. It's uh, almost what we could talk about is the physics of energy, this energy that comes at us in some ways, even when it's bitter, is delivering us a message for our own growth. And we say to it, not now, sometimes not ever, not, you know, please go away. And yet when when we live in that denial, the energy is still there. It's like it's your humble and obedient servant waiting to give you that message from the universe. And then 20 years later, you start to get ulcers or blood pressure. It's still there. That's ah. that, that delayed energy waiting to to be processed by you. We're such energy transformers as human beings. We have this capacity to take hatred, cruelty, raw, crude energy, and transform it into something refined, luminous, enlightened, spiritual, you know, of benefit to our fellow human beings. And when we really lock into that notion that we are transformational beings with these capacities, then we can start to take any energy and transform it upwards for the benefit of ourselves and others. I love that you say we are energy transformers. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about, in the, lead, in the field of leadership, there's a lot of talk these days about transformational leadership, and that focuses on how leaders can change their organization, take it to the next level, make it more productive, et cetera, bring higher performance in. And it, I'm wondering if, Using the term transformational leadership is actually useful in these days. It seems like it's not actually accurate based on the way you are describing transformation. What is is your thinking about that? Um, I think it's a pretty good term, but there's such an interesting dynamic going on in leadership. I mean, we're really on the edge of some very interesting material that suggests that we don't flatten leadership, that leadership has to stay dynamic. The leader still has to be a bold, courageous leader. There's so many people I know around the world that, you know, courage and the stepping forth even to forgive and reconcile their oppressors, it requires that that initiatory capacity. But at the same time, 
we're moving up towards collective leadership. So the transformational part of it is, is saying that I can do this for myself. I have these capacities to step forward. And at the same time, I must be cognizant. How do I use my energy system to lift all boats, to help uh-huh. others step into their capacities? It's, you know, I do intensives for, it, they're marvelous because they're only for nine people. I don't allow more than nine people. I take them for five days, and they're called peace, healing, and leadership intensives. Uh-huh. But what we, we really experience is, Everybody has to co-lead, co-teach, co-mentor the rest of the group. And people experience this, this very exciting capacity that we have to teach each other and to lead each other. So there's something in the we, the collective capacity. And more and more people want to step up, which is great, but that doesn't get the leader off the hook. They still have to step forward knowing that, you know, they they are have to demonstrate risk taking and and the really the incarnation of their deepest qualities, but not in a way that leaves them isolated from the others. Well, yeah, I mean that whole piece of isolation. I see that a lot as an executive coach and working with CEOs and senior leaders. I see that the further into the hierarchy they move, the more isolated they become and the more concerned they become about letting themselves be really seen, seen in their truth in that way. You know, they will be seen with the image of the leader and they often uh, suppress who they are. And so some of the work that we do is about reaching into them and finding that their own truth mm-hmm. and helping them to be what has been used as an overused term, an authentic leader. And, you know, it's really tough for people. It is really scary for them to be that vulnerable. Right, and to believe that... The universe in its wisdom has given them a set of qualities that they have to inhabit and 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 manifest. You know, the Sufis say, if you come to this earth and you, you know, become the king of kings and you do all these things, but you don't do the one thing that you are given to do, then you'll be back or whatever, you know. That <laughs> sense that we can spend our time doing a lot of things, but there we have an essence, we have qualities that that really when they're released, they're so much in dynamic service to others. And I love that notion of the servant leader. Yes. And I again and again I go back to courage. The courage to be who you are. And that's, that's, as you're saying, it's a fundamental stance that you have to inhabit because it takes humility in some senses to, to really see what has been put inside you by the universe that, that the world really needs. You can display all kinds of talents, 
But that's not the same as living our true qualities and capacities. And when I see that in the world, and I see it not not in the famous people often, but in like the mother in Rwanda, who after her two children have been killed in the genocide, finds it in her heart as a sort of intense imperative to find the murderers and to forgive them, to bring them healing. That's really going all the way with some seed that has been placed in you. Only you can sprout and manifest and realize that seed. That's that's hard to imagine. That is so powerful, the idea that she would put herself in front of people who could kill her. Right, and then she had the machete scars on her body to to live with. But she she speaks about that sense of, I knew that God was asking me this, both for for the healing between me and these people, but also for my country and its movement forward. And I think the leader has that sense of deep intuition about the pregnant possibilities, the the potential that if they actualize it, greatness will come. And many of us, you know, have that feeling of some great calling, just even in an intuitive or instinctive way when we're young, at age seven or something like that. And what we need are those people who see us. Again, it's a favorite theme of mine, but who has seen you and called you forth? You know, was it your grandmother or your teacher or your best friend who said, you know, I see you, you can't hide from me. And we have that capacity to call each other out. And it's almost as if when we're seen in that way, we can, be, we can realize ourselves in a, in, a, in a way that if we have that feeling but nobody calls us, it's like we don't get called to the dance of life. And, and that's a tragedy, of course. So I want to talk more about the dance of life and how we really get to what we have been put here to do when we come back after this break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. We're hearing more and more about the cloud and how we're using the cloud in our daily lives, whether we're aware of it or not. How can the cloud help your business? Join Bonnie D. Graham every Thursday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time for In the Cloud with Game Changers, presented by SAP on the Business Channel, and learn how to make your business soar to new heights. What's really going on in Washington? 
Listen as two of Washington's most experienced insiders, Howard Marlowe and Michael Willis, divulge the strategies of the key players affecting legislation and policy matters every week on The Inner Loop. Unlike most talk shows, which feature hosts that have little to no experience working with the federal government, The Inner Loop is hosted by two professionals who actively work to influence federal policy on a daily basis. The Inner Loop is heard live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. Our guest today, James O.D., is just enlightened us with some of his thinking about... Um, our purpose here as a society. And, James, I want to get back to a comment you made. Um, You talked about how we each have something that we were put here to do. We were brought into this world to do, and that if we do not touch that or if we're not able to actually do that, then um, we will not have completed our purpose. How do you find that? How do you know what that is? Uh, I think that's a great question. It uh, it partly relates to that notion of being seen, and and the other part is believing in yourself and uh, moving with courage into that space where you test the waters. And so often... I think we are afraid of failure or being laughed at or you're too big for your boots or get grounded. I particularly like dislike the expression get grounded because it's often you know said by people who are have tried a vision and failed and they want other people to be grounded but I think that notion that we we do we're, we all have a seed of vision in us and it's a complex set of circumstances that helps it develop fully. But one is that sense of belief in ourselves. Well, and so, so if you have someone who believes in themselves, is the sense of what they want to do, is that, is that just a matter of kind of following what shows up for you? Um, I think it's, 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 if we take Wilberforce, just as an example, you know, this, this man who is vital in the story of the abolition of slavery, he spent his life in, in that pursuit. And what he didn't confuse was vision and tactics. He, he had this vision that one day humanity would abolish slavery, the scourge, the immoral scourge of slavery. And so he set about you know, that task. And again and again, he meets with failure. He meets with loss. He meets, this doesn't work. He tries this approach. Public education, pamphleting, uh, parliamentary action. And 
but he's guided by the solution. I call it living inside the hologram of the solution, not living inside the problem. See, if his energy was totally connected with the problem, the problem would define him. But he was really defined by the solution, which was the end of slavery. And ultimately, um, it was a collection of efforts, but in the case of you know, his work in England, it was clever parliamentary procedure that really moved the game forward. And uh, so I, don't, I think we can't become attached to outcomes. We have to stay in that place where the vision is feeding us and everything else is feedback then. Once you're in that place where you're living inside the solution, when it doesn't go right this way when you attempt to take action, you say, aha, that's feedback. Hmm. Rather than there's something wrong with my vision, I should go do something else, I should find something else in life. Uh, and I think so often when we get excited by a vision and then we say, and this is the way to do it, and that way doesn't work, we can sort of even begin to give up on our vision. You know, that I that is so important because... What I see in our society, in the under the auspices of the practical, when someone has an idea or a vision that seems a bit outside of the norm, and they try it, um, and the, it does not work, the first thing that many people say to them is, "Okay, you tried. Now you know, come back and do something more practical. You know, you don't have to chase that anymore." And, you know, get more realistic, that word, be, be realistic, you know. And, and I have always seen that as a sad experience for people. You know, when, they, when others are saying, don't be big in this world, you know. I mean, I know that myself, I've had that experience with, you know, in growing up and, and people questioning, you know, why would you want to do that? Or really? No, that's just too much. You know, that's not practical, etc. And, you know, the times that I've said, well, you know, I, I don't agree with you and I'm going to do it anyway, it's always turned out well. You know? I mean, it's always turned out so that I can make it happen. And, um, and I've always seen that as my will. You know, I'm willing it into being. But I wonder if it's not will, if it's something else. Well, you know, I, I'm a believer in the subtle distinctions here, that in fact it is a combination of will and surrender. Hmm. So it's not, it's not complete surrender that says, you know, oh, well, we'll just let the universe do it, we'll let the divine do it, we'll let yeah. the talented other person in the organization do it, whatever. It's going to get done, that sort of blind faith. Well, it's not going to get done unless you actualize your part of the story and you, you know, you activate your will. But there is, will, will has to be, set into motion in the context not of willfulness and uh, my way or the highway, but a kind of surrender to the energy that is really calling us. So we activate the will and then we surrender. We activate the will and surrender. 
really. I just I love that. The language is so important. You know, the way we language how we live, the way we language our, uh, the way we engage in conversation, is so vital. And you know, I, I truly focus on that a lot with my clients, and it makes a huge difference in how they experience themselves and how they engage with others. So I really like the distinction between your will, not your willfulness, and the combination of will and surrender. Yeah, that is true. You really do have to surrender to what is, as you said, whatever shows up failure, if it's failure or it's right. challenges, that's feedback, right? And Yes, and I think it's, um, you know, I have a chapter in Cultivating Peace on energy mastery, and again, our collective capacities for master, the, being more masterfully uh, able to move, manipulate, work with subtle energy is definitely the case. It's it's sort of a collective rising of humanity's capacities in the energetic field. And what I mean by that is that you begin to read energy frequencies, the quality of energy coming from other people, and and you learn this discernment process of, I, I really don't need to touch that. When this person is complaining, they may be complaining to my face, but really their complaint is not for my for me. I'm just going to let that energy wash over me because I can see it's really not about me. And over here, this person is giving me feedback, and I can feel in the quality of the energy that's coming from them that really if I pay attention to this feedback... It's going to help me. It's it's nutrition. So we we I think increasingly collectively have these capacities to read energy deeply, and I think it's an evolutionary capacity. I think it's going to continue and continue until we get to the level of energy mastery that some of the great masters have. I think they are way showers that tell us so much suffering can be alleviated when we read energy carefully and we don't touch what is not ours to touch and we do touch that which is calling for us to connect with, to be with, to relate to, to engage with. And reading the field more and more accurately as we develop these capacities gives us that energy fluency and mastery so we don't spend time in those bogs and pools of confusion where really the energy is just spiraling and circling. It's negative. It's in complaint mode. It has no intention of going anywhere else. And we don't have to go often at that energy as missionaries. You know, sometimes we step into that bog because we say, well, you shouldn't be like that, and I'm going to do something and it be, you know, to change this. And what actually happens is you get caught in that bog, because it's a very powerful zone, and you start mirroring, you start complaining about the complainers. Well, what are you doing? You're in the same energy system. <laughs> so, what, it sounds what? like our political process. 
Yes, very much so. You know, we discovered in science about 10 years ago uh, this phenomenon of mirror neurons. And mirror neurons are fascinating because they're the neurons that fire in our brain that, that give us the experience of the other as ourselves. So when we're watching a game of tennis, the reason it's enjoyable is our mirror neurons are playing the game inside our head as if it was us hitting the ball. Oh. And, and the mirror neurons are, relate to every encounter we have with the other. What we do is we take the energy and the presence of the other, we transpose it into our brains as if it was ourselves, and then we say, aha, that's what's really going on here. So mirror neurons really create the social narrative of what's happening because we experience others as ourselves, and then that tells us how to proceed. And I think it's a very, it's a very important way of, of saying that in any situation when you can really effectively be conscious of the other person's center, energy centers, you transpose it into yourself and you say, you look at it as if that person were you, and that gives you so much information. It tells you whether that person is in a negative space, a needing space, a hurt space, even when their words are something else. You know, I have a whole section in Cultivating Peace about bullies. What I say about bullies is, well, yes, we all know about the physical bullies, but let's talk about the emotional bullies and the intellectual bullies. Yes. And those energy systems that are going on where people are condescending towards you because you don't know what they know. Well, what a manipulation. And then how do we use our energy system to avoid getting manipulated in that way? This is the high art, I think, of both building peace and leadership that is emerging because we're, we're really, as a species, rising to the next skills level of the game. You know, it makes me think about the issue of competition and how inside organizations as well as between organizations, um, the, the competition lives. Competition is the game changer. You know, it is what defines um, the organization that is successful or not. And well, I think what I'm hearing you say is that if we are in this high art of leadership these days, if we are building organizations that are peaceful, organizations, if they are organizations that um, understand the connection that everyone has, that that competition, will, will it fall away? Uh, well, there's so much in evolutionary theory that we're looking at in terms of this balance of competition and collaboration. We know in many ways they were much more collaborative and competitive in any organization. There has to be a huge amount of collaboration to achieve goals, yeah. and the same in the social order. And yet the competition, I think, comes from the leader who, the, what I call the healthy competition, comes from the leader 
who steps in courageously to their own qualities, and people see that. It's, it's a dynamic existential experience. They see someone, you know, really boldly leading from who they are, and it invites them to rise to the next level of their own capacity. So think, thinking of then how do we turn competition from negative competition of who do we destroy and who do we kick out of the game to we're basically collaborators, but we're going to compete to the highest good. We're going to compete to the highest value. We're going to compete to solve the problems. I mean, and, you know, we see in the business field some of that energy in the new entrepreneurial spirit that says, Let's compete in the solar domain for the highest, you know, sustainable energy, the highest ecological values. And uh, that's very exciting when, when we're really competing. But, you know, if we're competing to throw junk into the market, we're competing to throw more plastic new-news that are just piling up the garbage of the world, then... That, that that's really going nowhere. But I, I think in this evolution of consciousness, something begins to stir, and it's stirring, I think, ever increasingly in this time. And I, I really believe that it's happening below the radar screen, that so much good, so much peacemaking, so much values transition is in process, and it just, for some reason doesn't make the the news. Well, you know, it, it makes me think about how the pace of change seems so accelerated. Um, makes me wonder if it actually is accelerated or if we just know more because we can see more, feel more, we're more connected, we know what everybody's doing. Um, but nonetheless, the pace of change seems daunting. And this level of being able to see in the transparency that's beginning to develop, um, seeing, I mean, just take Facebook, for example, um, with the capacity for people to have momentary glances into what people are doing in their lives, and um, which kind of goes back to what you were talking about, the mirror neurons must make people feel pretty good. And, um, you know... I want to talk in our next segment about your perspective about this pace of change and about this level of transparency and if this transparency might be existing um, in many different levels, not just the physical level. But we'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. We spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment, and that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune into Real Recognition Radio 
Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Is marketing making us ill? And if it is, how can we heal humanity and the planet by changing the way we sell? This is Lynn Serafin inviting you to join me and a great lineup of thought leaders in business, media, and marketing on The Seven Graces of Marketing, Mondays at 6 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. So let the dialogue begin. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Well, welcome back to Leading Conversations. We are speaking today with James O.D., our very special guest. James, we left the last segment with um, a comment about the pace of change and the transparency that seems to be existing along with the pace of change in our society around the world. Um, what is your perspective on that as a whole? Um, I, one perspective is uh, summarized by the, the theologian and peace activist Thomas Merton, who is a great thinker and activist himself. And he said, you know, the desire to change everything, to be engaged in everything, to feel that you have to solve every problem, and the accelerating busyness of modern society, all these elements are a form of violence. And, uh, you know, in my own experience working with Amnesty International and in the hurt and wounded zones of the world, there was at that point, you know, I came to that point of, of, of activist zeal where you really, you want to change the world, and yet you meet a wall that says, you can't do that unless you're really taking care of yourself. If you truly care for others, you must care for yourself. So you've got to pace it. You've got to slow down. You've got to nurture the self. You've got to renew the self, not as a selfish thing, but as a way of, of being the peace that you seek in the world, being the change. And so I think that's the great learning that we're referring to now is sacred activism or any of those notions that say the accelerating change of the world in some ways is leading us you know, to a very steep cliff that we have to see a turnaround in the global way of doing business so that we take care of nature in a much better way and take care of ourselves. So I, I love the question because I think nature teaches us pacing 
nature teaches us its rhythms and cycles, and it's it's a return to the wisdom process of those cycles that will really heal the frenzied pace, the insane pace, the violent pace of of change, and yet that other aspect of change that is so exciting is to see that consciousness itself is evolving, that we see in the Arab Spring and in so many places in the world, people are just on the move and connecting in a way they've never done before. And so those technologies for connectivity and values transformation will ironically take us into a slower pace. How about that? So the fast pace of... It's almost like a birthing process in the planetary sense that we're we're moving faster and faster <laughs> into those final moments of the birth. Ah. And so, you know, everything is timing. So we we have we have to get it right that we were called to give birth to a wiser human species, a more nurturing and compassionate and empathic species one that is truly appreciative of this gorgeous planet that we exist on and its beautiful teachings around rhythms and cycles. And so I think that the merging of technology and wisdom is in the future of civilization, planetary civilization, that these technologies are not a mistake. They're not simply about that form of change change of pace that is frenzy, but they're leading us to that global heart, that global civilization that says, now we can connect as one. Now we can defend the hologram of the whole. We can nurture the whole planetary experience. We can appreciate our diversity and yet know that there is a unity that is so compelling, just like that first shot, the first photograph of planet Earth from the moon, you know, from the astronauts coming back. That's such an image of our wholeness and connectivity. Now we have the technologies for that. Everything is in place. We have the emerging consciousness for that. So I say cultivate peace as the essential game changer because our time is coming, and I would be hopeful, even when things are as as bad as they're getting in terms of environmental degradation, climate change, war. The, the other side of the story is the emergence of the joyful, healthy, nurturing species of human evolution. That is, that is so profound, it makes me want to be silent. I... It is something that that's such an interesting experience that I'm having right at this moment that it just what you said just makes me want to be peaceful. <laughs> mm. Oh man, I, that, ah. and, and you know I'm I'm struck by so much of it, but I'm also in in the practical sense, I'm struck by what you said about all these connections will actually um, ultimately be what slows us down. And I think that the 
common belief is that all of these connections are the reason that we have been speeding up so much and it's just driving people crazy and that people have a hard time keeping up and um, the expectations become so big because if someone asks a question, you have to answer it right now and, you know, all of that that is happening in our world and yet you're saying that eventually this is really what is going to bring us back to the nature of who we are. I think so, because underneath it is the values. I mean, and it's those values that I think we're reaching towards of planetary responsibility. You know, at the end of the Second World War, we had the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But now we see that we can't really accomplish those rights without acknowledging our responsibilities as well. And... uh, and so the value system of rights and responsibilities will be the transformative element and that, that it's the values of exploitation, of treating nature like a junk shop, of the values of profit over sustainability. All of those learnings that we've been fitfully and, and, and learning with great difficulty at times Right. I think we master. I think we do master in the end. So I'm very hopeful about that. But I, I think, nonetheless, we have to face with real clarity the severity of the learning curve that we're facing so that um, we we use these gifts of technology to really hone in on those solutions that are at hand. I opened the book Cultivating Peace in the first chapter talking about smiling and about humor and about lightness. And I do so because what I want to remind people is the fundamentalists are just not having fun. (laughs) The hyper-serious people are the ones who are getting us into trouble. They're so serious about excessive profit or they're so serious about their religious or political views that they're driving us over the edge. And so that we know in, in, in contemporary mind-body-health science that it's the happier people who live longer. And that sense of, you know, I look at the Dalai Lama and I look at the smile on his face, it's, it's, it's a transcendental smile. It's a smile of one who knows that in the end we make it. It's the smile of one who has this terrible responsibility for his people and the suffering of his people in Tibet. And yet the smile is that knowing smile of belief and deepest faith in what is in the human being and our capacity to transform even a colossally damaged story. And that has been my training, to go into the broken and wounded places of the world and see in, on the streets in the so-called average people, those people who say, we can transform even the cruelest hatred of the world. Why not come with us? And I think they are, they are the symbols for me of a humanity that can leave its mistakes, its learning process behind the parts of it that, that end up you know, with so much brokenness. And and become a healing story. So 
I am an optimist in 2012 when so many people are apocalyptic about what faces us. And I can only be an optimist because I face the darkness. I live through the pain. I will not deny the reality of the problem, but I am deeply immersed inside the vision of the solution. Well, James O.D., we have come to the end of the show. It has been such an honor to have you here. I know people will want to know so much more about what you do and how to connect with you. Um, how can they do that? Uh, my website is jamesod.com, jamesodea.com. And we have a special gift for people. We are giving away, uh, I think, a beautifully recorded version of my book, Creative Stress, Oh. A path for evolving souls living through personal and planetary upheaval. So, my gift to them, and then uh, they'll also find out there about my latest book, Cultivating Peace, Becoming a 21st Century Peace Ambassador. And if you want to sense that skill of how we get there collectively to that place of planetary peace, I encourage you to read Cultivating Peace. Thank you, James Odie. You are a brilliant man and a gift to all of us. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl. It was so good to be with you this morning. I look forward to the time when I am sitting in front of you having a conversation. That will be an honor. Absolutely. Have a beautiful day. Thank you very much. And remember, everyone, to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 